What is adultery? What preventatives are needed to protect ourselves from this deadly sin? And how can Jesus Christ provide forgiveness if it occurs? These are the questions we want to wrestle with as we discuss the Seventh Commandment. Our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, has gone through the period known as midlife. As he begins our study today, he talks about some of the ways that he handled the over 40 crisis. Joel and I, with the help of a very close friend, have started to take a whole new course, a whole new dimension in our lives. And we've begun to learn how to fly. In fact, he says that we can take our written test whenever we want to. And then we have two years for Mary's worst fears to be realized. Because what could be worse than trying to teach a pastor how to fly an airplane than to try to teach a doctor how to fly an airplane? Arvid Westfall told me he used to do a lot of instructing and everything. There's nothing worse than teaching a doctor or a minister how to fly an airplane. Now, there's a reason for that. Because when you get in an airplane, there are dozens upon dozens of rules. So I get in this airplane, and John's sitting beside me, and the very first rule goes totally against everything that you believe about steering wheels. In other words, from the time that you've been a kid, you get in a, a, anything that moves, and if there's a steering wheel in your hand, if you want to turn left, what do you do? You turn the wheel to the left. If you want to turn right, you turn the wheel to the right. And so this powerful airplane engine is roaring in front of you, and you're going to pull out, and you're going to taxi, and the very first thing you need to be told is just, just hold that yoke with one hand and hold it straight, because it will do absolutely nothing on the ground except keep your nose up and keep it out of the mud if you pull it all the way back but it's not going to steer to the left. You can turn it all the way you want to the left, and it won't do a thing. I say, great. John tells Joel that once, forevermore, he never turns the steering wheel to the left to turn left. But I, hours after hour of instruction, we begin to roar down the runway for takeoff. And we begin to veer a little bit to the left, and I turn sharply with a yoke to the right. And nothing happens. We are still cascading towards the fence. And then I remember, rules, rules. You've got to steer with your feet. Basic principle of taxing. Rule number one, you've got to steer with your feet. In fact, the only way that I really learned to do that was to go like this. I have to now take off. No. <laughs> then we get up in the air. You know, we, we're starting to roar down the run. We've got the taxi down. At 4550 knots, we're supposed to rotate. Now, what in the world does rotate mean? Well, we have to go through all that, and we pull back on the yoke. When we hit that right speed, it's an amazing thing. The airplane rises right off the ground. Incredible. But then you've got another rule. As soon as you rise off the ground, you're pulling back. That's a nice, natural reaction. If you want to go up, it makes sense to pull back. And then we've got another rule. John starts yelling at me. Now you need to push forward. You need to push forward. Stop pulling back. No, he doesn't yell at me. He's really actually very, very sedate and very quiet. He takes a lot of tranquilizers when he flies with me. He's all ready to go. Why? Because if the rule is if you keep pulling back, 
you'll go right up just like those gas airplanes we used to fly. Remember when you took those off, somebody used to fly those when they first come off the ground? If you don't get their nose down, they go right up straight over your head and come charging down. And you have to run to get out of the way and they go boom right into the ground. Same thing will happen to this airplane. You've got to push back on the yoke four inches off the horizon. Well, John's horizon is about a foot different than mine, so I have to try to guess what he's talking about. But you've got to push back on the yoke, because if you don't, the airplane will come right back over on its back, bang, into the ground. There's all these rules. Now, taking off is easy. We've only gone through the easy part. The taxiing, steering with your feet. Taking off the airplane almost takes off all by itself. Now, landing is a different thing. Now, my idea about landing, my conception of landing is that you get the Waxhachie Airport lined up in your window, and you push the yoke down, and you aim because you want to come down. So you push the yoke down, and you aim the nose right for the, just for the front of the runway, and, man, you just come right in. No way. Not going to work. I mean, we had to sit down at the table for this one. I mean, no more even flying by the seat of our pants. We had to get the rules and regulations out. So Joel and I sat down for about 40 minutes of flight training. And here it all is. All kinds of rules and regulations. I mean, all kinds of stuff about going on a downwind leg, making a sharp 90-degree turn. And, we, and this, is the, this is one of the rules that really bothers me because we power back. We got a power back, we got 10 degrees of flaps, we're flying just a little bit under 100 knots, and he tells me you can't lose any altitude on this turn. And he says, now in order not to lose any altitude on this turn, you need to pull back on the yoke. So I start pulling back on the yoke, and he says, David, you just killed us. I said, what do you mean you just killed us? He said, if I was not in the airplane with you, you pulled back so hard that we would have just about a little bit less than a thousand feet off the ground, you pulled back so hard that our wing would have dipped right over and we would have just cascaded right into the ground. You can't pull back that hard. I go, thanks. Good rule. Now, one of the things that I want you to understand, and you haven't gotten the point by now, if you're going to learn to fly, there's some very essential things. Number one is what I think about taking off, about steering, what I think about landing, there's a totally different concept to landing that was totally opposed to what I think of. You kind of control the crash. A nice way of saying it is you kind of just ease the airplane out of the air and slowly kill your lift. You don't fly it down on the ground. You just slowly let it settle out of the air. That's totally different than the way Dave Wurtzen thinks. My idea of making the sharp right turn is to pull back all the way, and if you do, you're going to get killed. Now, as I've been teaching you the Ten Commandments, and as I've been trying to submit to an instructor, I think there's a lot of correspondences. I think we're living in a society where individual families and where the entire society wants to fly all by themselves. There's an instructor that says you can't steer with a yoke in your hand. You can't turn it to the left. Nothing's going to happen. It will not work. And the instructor's trying to tell you, you've got to use the pedals. You've got to use your feet. You've got to steer the thing like this. But we don't want to listen. We get the thing off the ground, kind of by hook or by crook, and we start flying around. We think everything's great. Because in flying, once you're up in the air, the plane does a lot of stuff all by itself. And if it's a good airplane, it's very forgiving. It'll almost do its own thing. 
But to get safely back on the ground, there's all kinds of rules, all kinds of procedures, all kinds of things that you need to follow very precisely, and you can't blow it. And God is telling us that that's the way life is. The Ten Commandments is like God being our life instructor. Not a flight instructor, but a life instructor. And he's saying, this is the way you fly through life. This is the way you're able to take off. This is the way you're going to be able to land safely. And we live in a society which has thrown away the flight manual. And we've decided we don't need the instructors sitting beside us. We're going to do it our own way. And the incredible thing is, as I'm learning how to fly, when I'm trying to get the technique down, like I'm landing, John will say, keep your feet on the controls with me. Keep your hand on the yoke with me. But be easy. Follow me. And an interesting thing starts taking place because very gently he starts to help you do what he does. And there's a very important thing. There's a submission, which is really hard for preachers to do. You have to be real easy and let your feet go the way his feet go. And you start to feel the way that airplane works. And that's what God wants to do in our own lives. Now that's what we've been doing for the last several weeks. The Ten Commandments is one of, one of page number ones in life instruction. The tragedy is that we live in a society which for the most part is throwing away the book. And our idea is that nothing will happen. And what I want to get across to you is that something will happen. You will spin, you will go into a stall, and you will crash and burn. Twenty years of pastoral ministry has showed me if you break the Ten Commandments, you crash and you burn. The incredible thing about that is that Jesus can come in with forgiveness and he can help us. And he can put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But one of the roles that I think a pastor teacher needs to play is he needs to be a life instructor that tries to open up the Word of God and helps us to get the instructions in to many of us before we crash and burn. Now we've come to the seventh commandment. We've come through one through six. Now the seventh commandment is a commandment which I think in much of our society is being largely jettisoned. Let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and let's look at the seventh life instruction that teaches us about how to live. Deuteronomy chapter 5. We have it also written in Exodus chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 5, though, we'll just stick in the book where we've been studying. Deuteronomy chapter 5, and right after the commandment we looked at, the last time we were together, you shall not murder. Now we look at verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. And all the American society said, oh no. And all of God's people said, now let's stop and think about this, this commandment. In your notes, I had you think about this. What do you want? Think of the children. Think of the adults. What do you want in a relationship between a man and a woman? Do you think of growing up and you think of finding someone that you really love? What are you looking for in a relationship between a man and a woman? And I wonder whether words like honesty, how many of you really want honesty in a relationship? In other words, the person that you say, will you marry me? And the person says, yes, the person that you say that to, and when they respond, how many of you want that to be an honest answer? They really believe that you can really count on what they said. They're honest. How many of you want 
trust in the relationship. How many of you men want to be able to go, like if you get married to this woman and you go away on a business trip, how many of you want to be able to be three or four days in another city, and when you call home, it never needs to cross your mind that your wife will be in bed with somebody else? How many of you would really like to have a relationship where when you call home after you've been married for four or five years, your wife really won't be in bed with someone else? Is that a bad deal? Is that, is that what you would like? How many of you girls would like a husband that when he's away on a trip, that you can be sure that he's dependable? In other words, he won't take off his wedding ring. He won't pretend that he's not married to you. He won't take a vacation from you. In other words, you can trust him. Is that a good deal or is that a bad deal? I think that's a pretty good deal. I think that's something you all really, really want. Here's another word for you. What about love? How many of you want someone who is gentle, who is patient, who is forgiving, who is kind? We all want that, right? This command, thou shalt not commit adultery, which is a great big negative. It is a negative. No, don't commit adultery. But what I'm trying to help you to see is that it's really a gigantic positive. The reason that God is so strong in this negative is because it guards some things that are so incredibly positive to you. I would ask the teenagers, like, how do you feel if mom and dad have to come in and say, we blew it? We got in bed with somebody we should not have gotten into. How does a kid feel when that happens? What about little tiny kids where you can't explain what really happened, but they can see this tremendous, this tremendous blot or this tremendous time of darkness that's come into a relationship? You see, the seventh commandment is the life instructor saying to us, I want you to really guard some things in your home life. And the purity of the marital bond is one of the most precious, one of the most truthful, one of the most dependable, one of the most vital relationships in all of life. And God loves us so much that just like John, when I go to land and I pull back too hard on the yoke, he says, don't do that. You cannot do that. We will die if you do that. No, I don't say, John, leave me alone. Quit bugging me. Don't tell me what to do it my own way. John would never let me do that. It's his airplane. But I really want you to feel what I feel. I don't feel it in our own gathering together of God's people. But I feel it in the secular society very strongly. Someone that says, thou shalt not commit adultery. We asked one of our presidential candidates, have you ever committed adultery? Go ahead and ask me that question. What's the answer to that question? David, you ever committed adultery? No, I haven't. Never been in bed with someone that didn't belong to me. You say, well, Dave, what happened if you have? Then you say, yes, I have. And I've asked the Lord Jesus in heaven to forgive me, and he shed his precious blood to wash it whiter than snow, and I'm a new creation. And my wife, by the grace of God, by a miracle, has forgiven me. Let's go on. Those are the answers to that question. Have you committed adultery? One of two answers. But what does our society go? Maybe, maybe not. And in soap operas across the land, the idea is that you can climb in and out of someone's sheets that you shouldn't be in 
And the idea is that everybody lives happily ever after. Now, I feel like a voice crying in the wilderness, but I want you as the people of God to understand that the seventh commandment, just like the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not violently take a life. That command guards the preciousness of your physical life. The seventh commandment guards the preciousness of your dependability, your honesty, your truthfulness as a sexual being. And the children that are born into your home, for that home to be secure, in order for the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, to really work out, then we've got to keep the seventh. Because we can never expect children to honor a mom and dad who break the seventh commandment. And that's why in old Israel, this commandment that was given in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5, why it was given such a strict punishment. You look at the punishment phase, it says in Leviticus chapter 20. Turn to Leviticus chapter 20. And let's look at what the king of the Old Testament, the king of God's people said about the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, and I want you to see that this seventh commandment focuses strategically not on all sexual offenses. That would be another discussion. The discussion we're focusing on is the incredible treachery of a man who's married to a woman who gets in bed sexually with someone that's not his wife. And it tells it out very clearly. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, I want you to see that. The wife of his neighbor. Now, it's not just talking about the person that lives next door to you. It's not saying the only way you can commit adultery is if you climb in bed with your neighbor's wife. That can happen, but that's not the exclusion that it's talking about. In English, we use the idea of neighbor to be just our next-door neighbors. In the Old Testament, your neighbor was anyone that you related with. In fact, old Israel viewed itself as everyone was relating to everyone else. We are in this together. In other words, in Midlothian and in Waxahachie and in Cedar Hill and all the surrounding areas, in cities across the United States, we are communities. The word community comes from commune. It comes from the idea of being one, of being in this together. There's all kinds of togetherness. We go to a basketball game and I look around the room and there's all this connectedness. All these relationships, everyone watching their kids play basketball. And I can think back of when they were in high school and when they fell in love and when they got married and now they brought kids in the world and now they're watching their kids play basketball and now the grandparents have to come out too to watch the grandkids play. And it's all this connectedness. Adultery shatters that. It's against your neighbor. It destroys the connectedness. It shatters all this community. And that's what the Old Testament realized. If you go to bed with your neighbor's wife, you've shattered that neighbor relationship. And why does God say the next line? He says this. Or but both the adulterer and the adulteress, what? They must be what? Put to death. Now that's a heavy punishment. In the Old Testament, the punishment, the punishment for adultery was death. Now, why did the king of kings, 
Why was he that strict? Why did he have, you know, why did he execute the death penalty? Was it barbaric days? No. In fact, in the Old Testament, to be honest with you, it's very hard to find a biblical case where someone was put to death. There is the case where Phineas, when the children of Israel, a priestess, a, a priest's daughter, and a Moabite were having relationships illegitimately, and he put a spirit through both of them. And God quelled the plague that broke out against his people. That's probably the most violent, the most strong execution of thou shalt not commit adultery, and if you do, capital punishment. In the Old Testament, you're pretty hard-pressed to find the case. For, for example, in King David's case, when he committed a horrible sin, both murder and adultery, God was gracious and forgiving. Now, God does. You see, God does recognize our weakness. He does realize our humanity. But I want you to feel his heart when he gives, when he gives a punishment like this. It's underscoring how important it is not to break that command. And so the law books of Israel had, if you commit adultery and you're found in the act and there's witnesses that can verify it, then stoning was the punishment. In John 8, you all remember the famous story when the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery. And I want you to see how that contradicts Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, because Leviticus says both the adulterer and the adulteress. No double standard. Which, by the way, was an incredible thing because throughout the ancient world, like from Babylon to Egypt, the men could get away with bloody murder. If the wife was, was sexually immoral, she got in really bad trouble. But throughout the ancient areas, it was kind of assumed, a lot like the modern culture, that the men could go ahead and do it freely. That's where our society is. That's where the world is. But the creator of the universe still says adultery is so treacherous, it's such an act of treason, that as far as justice is concerned, the wages of that sin is death. Now as we move that, we move into the Old Testament prophets. Like for example, if you look at Jeremiah, turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. If you look at verse 9, it goes to a very strategic point. And what Jeremiah says is that the Old Testament spiritual life instructors were teaching the wrong material. I want you to look very carefully at these following words. They're very important for us to understand. Look at verse 9. The Lord is speaking. My heart is broken within me. God's heart is broken. All my bones tremble. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine. The prophet, as the man of God, is saying, I'm responding to the heart of God and I am broken. My heart, my body is wasting away. It says, I'm, I've become like a man who's been overcome with wine. Why? Because of the Lord and his holy works. In other words, this man of God is so perceptive to how the commands of God are being broken that it's just, it's breaking him. He feels so terrible about what's happening in the land. Now he brings out what is happening, what he feels so terrible about. In verse 10 it says, the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land lies parched, and the pastures in the desert are withered. In other words, the prophet is all upset because the land is full of adultery. The tragedy of our day and what really breaks my heart is that in our day, the land is full of adultery. 
But the so-called prophets of God are not too broken about it. In fact, in the late 80s, the prophets of God supposedly became the ones that just, just one after another committed adultery. And it's done something horrible to our land. It's done something horrible to the cause of Christ. This is not a new thing. The prophets of old Israel, Jeremiah is just one of many. Hosea, we could have done the same thing with the prophet Hosea. They recognized that society, that old Israel was filled with adultery. Now what happens when a land is filled with adultery? The agricultural prosperity starts going to the tent. You see, because men and women, when they start to live by the passion of their glands, and they're going in and out of one household after another, it starts to influence the whole way that they look upon life. And it's very hard. You see, life is hard. It's hard to get up in the morning. It's hard to put in a good eight-hour day. It's hard to bring that salary home. It's hard to put a house up. It's hard to keep a job. It's hard to put food on the table. It's hard to raise kids. And as the land starts to be falling into breaking the seventh commandment, Everybody start to devote themselves just to fulfilling those passions, just to have a good time. The 80s and the 90s could easily be labeled, let the good times roll, but we know better. Dave started our discussion today talking about how unforgiving flight can be when one forgets the laws of aerodynamics. The same kinds of crashes take place when we abandon God's principles for skillful living. Let's pray that the Lord will raise up a new breed of spiritual leader who will be able to be trusted by the opposite sex instead of used sexually. Let's pray that Christ will break our pride so that we will allow the power of the cross and the resurrection to turn us away from adultery instead of entertaining ourselves with it. Moral purity needs to begin with a commitment of our own hearts. Think about it, and then join us again next week as Dave continues this discussion.